this week on The Futurists. The long-term impact of COVID on society. So I basically believe that the impact of COVID will change life forever. There's no ever going back to December 2019. And there, I think, from a human perspective, so I had written something I called the jigsaw of return, which is why I said people will never go back to the offices and words like remote and hybrid are stupid, right? They're different words called unbundled and distributed. Now, I wrote a piece called Return to the Office, which is now read in boardrooms, and they said, this is so simple. I said, yeah, because you're not thinking, right? And there are three key things. I believe the future of work is everyone's gonna be a gig worker. Even if you're working in a company for 37 years full time, you're gonna be a gig worker. Second is you're gonna be working with machines and what you add to the machine will be where your value is, not against machines or without machines. That's the second component. And the third is everything that you do is gonna eventually be measured. And those three things mean that most of us are going to become fractionalized employees. Well, hey, Brett. Greetings. I see that you're in an airport. Where are you now, the world travel? I'm I'm in Calgary, about to head to Miami for another event. Uh, good to be finally getting back on the road. No doubt. That's true. Yeah, this, this uh, post-pandemic world that I guess we've all decided we're living in. You were off in the, the last time I spoke to you in Mauritius, I think, or was it South Africa? I, I, yeah, I did a well. I did an event in Mauritius, and then I came here for an event in Calgary, um, and also had an event in Dallas last week, and now Miami, and then Niagara this week. So yeah, interesting. I'm happy you were able to patch in from the airport in Calgary. Uh, that's always an awkward thing to do to be talking from an airport lounge. Super to connect with you again. We have to catch up and talk about how the world has changed. But before we do that, let me introduce this week's guest, because we're talking to someone I've known for a number of years. He's a friend of my family. He's someone who I respect tremendously, and I'm hardly the only one who feels that way. We're going to talk to Rishad Tabakawala. Formerly, he was the, uh, the, the head of strategy at the Publicis Group and at Digitas before then. And he has a long track record, more than 30 years of working for that firm as it grew uh, to worldwide dimension. So a true expert in the fields of marketing and advertising and digital media. Let's give a big welcome to Rishad. Rishad Tabakawala, welcome to The Futurists. Welcome. Thank you for, welcome. Thank you for having me. We're glad you could join us. Exciting to catch up with you. Um, and as uh, as folks who are listening to this might know, uh, you may know Rashad through his newsletter. And if you're not familiar with it, you can find that at rashad.substack.com. So an, yet another expert is dipping a toe into the ocean of newsletters on Substack. And Rashad is the author of a book called Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. And I can't think of a better topic for this moment that we're in, Rashad, because right now, so many people have been struggling with digital media and its intrusions and the way it's disrupted their lives. You know, for years, we've been hearing about business disruption, but we don't tend to think much about how people's lives and their relationships uh, and the way they communicate and talk to their friends and family. We haven't talked much about how that disrupts people. And then in this day and age of conversational marketing, marketers are always trying to get a word in edgewise or chime in on that conversation in some fashion. Give me your perspective, if you will, right now about the state of play in the world of marketing and advertising. So the state of play is we're about to enter what I call the third connected age. Um, and you know, marketing and advertising has been around a long, for a long, long time. And I have no doubt that the cavemen painted signs for something or the other. And you know, 
advertising and marketing tends to move in tandem with changes in communication technology. So as we move from print to radio to television, we saw those shifts happen. But the real significant change occurred around 1993 when the World Wide Web came to be. And that's when we entered the first connected age and human beings connected to discover and be connected to transact. And those gave rise to businesses which we now call search and e-commerce. And that obviously changed, not only did it change the world of business, giving large companies like Amazon and Google, but it changed everything from the newspaper industry, which did not, you know, was hurt by Google. It basically changed how we bought things, what we expected, our expectations. In 2007, we entered the second connected age, which built on the first one. And this was when, as human beings, because of technology advancements, we could connect to everybody and we could connect all the time. We call that social and mobile. And that, in addition to giving rise to the powerhouses of companies like Apple and Meta, basically changed society as we know it, which is the mobile phone became the key device with which we interact with the world. We spent a lot of time in social media. It changed the way elections were held. It changed society. It gave dramatic shifts to self-harm among girls, but at the very same stage, it allowed you to connect with friends you never knew all around the world. Um, and that was pretty dramatic. We have now entered the third connected age, and these build on each other. And this third connected age has four new forms of connection. And these I describe more, less as in people, uh, but more in some form of like connection in technology because I haven't yet figured out the exact people alignment. But these are the four. One is we're going to see much faster connections, and that's the world of 5G. The second is we're going to basically see new ways to connect. So we're going to already have voice, which are scaled up, and we're going to see augmented reality and virtual reality. We're going to basically see data connecting to data, which is machine learning, which is AI, which is already scaling. And then we're going to basically have new ways to find trust connections, which is blockchain. So you take trust connections, much faster forms of connecting, new ways of connecting, right? And machine learning AI, which is data connecting to data. And I believe all the shifts and changes we have seen in this first between 1993 and 2023, let's say 20 years or 30 years, is just a precursor of some crazy stuff that's about to come. And so I'm spending a lot of time guiding boards, guiding people, because I'm trying to explain what I call the future of the internet. I don't describe it as Web3, Metaverse, NFT, DAOs. I talk about the future of the internet and how these things fit in the future of the internet. So it's going to be a very unusual time. And what you're now seeing clearly is some human elements of everything from, you know, war and change and disease, new ways of working combined with underlying new technologies. Okay, that's a great opening statement. And what a vision. Uh, so you've talked about the three different phases, uh, three waves of connectivity. We're at the beginning of this third wave. So it's a little hard to predict or anticipate exactly how it's going to unfold, but you identified a number of the underlying technologies that everybody listening is familiar with. Yeah. We can certainly delve into those. But one of the big things that's happening right now, like this month uh, in May of 2022, 
is that we're reeling uh, from the aftermath of a big shock to the system. Uh, you know, 2021 was a stellar year in terms of venture capital investment, in terms of startup companies, valuations for businesses. And of course, the tech sector performed brilliantly last year. But all that seemed to come to an end at the beginning of this year. And it's this sort of toxic combination of war and pandemic, recession or uh, inflation uh, that caused investors supply to chain basically, yeah, that's right. And the supply chain disruptions from the pandemic, all of that caused investors to get skittish uh, about future growth in the tech sector. And so we saw NASDAQ plummeted, losing about 25% of its valuation. And anytime there's any kind of reaction like that, uh, a downturn, which we've seen many of in the last 15 years, um, the first thing to go is marketing budgets. So how do you expect that this is going to affect marketing budgets? Here on the one hand, you describe this grand vision and training this third yeah. phase. Yeah. On the other hand, we've got this disruption in the marketplace. So the how do you see that playing out? Yes, yeah, so here's the following. The first is the stuff that I described has little to do with marketing or advertising. It's just mm -hmm. the way the world works, right? Uh, and in effect, I would basically believe that what you're going to see is specifically to marketing and advertising you are not going to see the same decline as you've seen in the past. Yes, people are gonna cut budgets. Uber today announced that they're cutting their marketing advertising budget, a lot of people do. But what they often basically, you know, sort of recognize is there are three key things that are happening right now. The first one is marketing has become much more about experiences and much more about purpose and values, then it's about saying something about the brand. And to me, if you spend money designing a better product, if you spend money on better customer service and stronger employees, you actually have a stronger brand. So my basic belief is marketing is everything to, for all purposes. And that is increasingly going to be the differentiator because to a certain extent, Almost everything else we do is being automated away really, really fast, right? The future of finance is being highly automated. The future of accounting has been, you've seen the future of a lot of things. On the other hand, and that's the central premise of my book and the central premise of what I remind people is we choose with our hearts and we use numbers to justify what we just did. If that wasn't true, none of us would be born. Our parents would have computed ROI on childhood and said it doesn't work. Okay, if you wear a watch and it's, why do you wear a watch? Your phone has a better timekeeper. If you wear a watch and it's not a swatch, why are you paying that much money? If you're driving a car, why are you driving anything more expensive than a Toyota Camry? Why do $120 billion, which is greater than advertising, than everything that's basically spent in television subscriptions, cable subscriptions, and movie, go to skinning your characters in games, right? Is we... Humans are analog carbon-based feeling people. Yes, we're living in a data-driven silicon digital age. And to differentiate yourself, I remind people, the companies that today people celebrate, whether it's an Apple or LVMH, Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, do not separate themselves on price, do not separate themselves on data, right? They separate themselves on marketing, all kinds of marketing, design, storytelling, provenance, right? So. More and more businesses are recognizing that it's that. Will advertising specifically be cut? Probably non-measurable will probably be cut. But I think overall marketing will be fine because in effect, 
marketing is the way companies differentiate themselves. And in a world today where anybody can click away one step from the other, it's very hard to differentiate just on price. I, I was going to ask you actually about this experience design competency. You know, um, a lot of what you're talking about in terms of engagement and so forth, you know, we, we talk about that more broadly as interaction design or experience design. Um, but for a lot of traditional organizations, this is a brand new competency. And, and previously, they would have relied on agencies for that. But uh, the way you talk about it, this is now sort of a core set of skills for most organizations to have. Um, you know, have, have you helped organizations through that transition of understanding that, you know, now they own these digital interactions, they own these experiences their customers are having and need to be much more connected to that? Yes, absolutely. And they are recognizing it because part of it is I have the opportunity to speak with a lot of very senior management. And they've begun to recognize that what they consider to be the customer journey is now a journey that isn't just about telling someone and they buy a product and you measure it. Um, it is, to your point, everything from experience design to product design to usage design to the way customer service interacts with them to the way your stores are designed to the way your website are designed. Um, so they de definitely recognize that and they have a lot of those capabilities, uh, building those capabilities both in-house, but because of the skills they need and the scale at which they need it, they also then turn to a lot of outside partners, You know, whether it be what used to be the original big design agencies like the IDEOs and Frog Designs or other modern agencies um, or different companies. So yes, they're clearly thinking about that. And in fact, a lot of what I speak to them about that is that because their basic belief is that the journey has changed. And a simple example is this, and we do this all the time. And I give this as an example. And for anybody who doesn't believe it, once they understand this example, say, oh my God, you're right. Which is the other day, a few months ago, I was trying to be cool. So I was sitting outside a place waiting for my wife on TikTok, okay? which I normally don't use. So I was looking around and I said, okay, oh, there's an interesting thing. Uh, I, it was basically a video of a, a new kind of basic um, USB kind of thing that was available for sale. And they said, would you like to buy it? And I said, yes. And they basically said, hey, would you like to get it delivered or would you like to pick it up from your local Target store? And I happened to be like less than two blocks from the local Target store. So I clicked local Target store. I went to the Target store, I bought the product, and I came home. Okay. Now, the way we're organized and the way we think about it, what was that? Was that above the line because I saw an ad or was it below the line because I bought a product? Was it marketing, which is what the ad budget is, or was it sales, which was the store had this at in that display? Was it offline or was it online? Was it mobile, was it e-commerce, was it social? And as a, that's the reason my substack is called the future does not fit in the containers of the past. Everything we think about customer journey, the way people exactly. interact, the way people expect is completely different. And in order of that, you have to reorganize your company's parts around a new spine. Uh, and a lot of that is the sort of the future of marketing. And you'd mentioned to a great extent that I spent time at Publicis. And, and the key thing that I always remind people is I spent 37 years, I still advise them, but I spent 37 years at Publicis. In 2005, 2006, working with the leadership, I built a case that we needed to be even more digital than we were. And at that time, we were pretty digital. I had companies that I was founded and ran. 
And that's when we purchased a company called Digitas, right, which owned Modem and a bunch of other things. And then we rapidly bought other companies. So when I left uh, Publicis uh, as a full-time employee uh, to start the second career, I looked back to see three numbers, right? And I said, okay, what company did I was I at 20 years ago and what company am I at today? So besides the company is much larger, I looked at what percent of the revenue came from digital, what percent of the revenue came from advertising, and what the people mix was. And the digital went basically from 6% to 63%. The what advertising, which you think about television and radio advertising, went from 75% to 28%. And the number of engineers we had among our team went from 35 to 18,000. That's the future of marketing. It isn't necessarily ads, right? So yes, they will cut a lot of stuff, but they're not going to... Con- In today's power, if I define marketing as understanding and meeting customer requirements, and all of us are customers, or consumers, and we have massive power. If you are not going to align your company to meet us, how are you going to sell stuff? But Rashad, I mean, just even using above the line, below the line terminology, it sort of indicates, um, as you and I both experienced, that for big ad firms like Publicis, the big four, um, you know, WPP and so forth, they really struggled in the early days of digital to break out of those those buckets of uh, behavior because of the way they thought about ad creation and so forth Um, uh, you know you you were right in the midst of that so um, tell me about the cultural fight of of getting um, you know digital advertising and digital engagement uh, to become uh, primacy so I've written a thing which is there's a six-pack you need to drink if you want change to happen, the change that you look at. You have to have six different cans of something, maybe Perrier, okay, but you need six of them. The first three, uh, which, you know, you've lived through, Brad, uh, we've all lived through, which are very important, is you need to have a strategy. And I define strategy as future competitive advantage. So you have to have a vision of how people will be, who will be competing, and what your clients want, because you then have to make decisions, financial and other decisions. The second, usually at that stage, you have to recognize that you need things you don't have. So that's usually M&A. And over the years I was there, we did about $10 billion of M&A. Okay. So that's, you bring in additional companies, additional mindsets, additional leaders, et cetera. The third thing that you basically need is some form of reorganization. So you have to reorganize, no, don't, no, no longer think about above the line, below the line, offline, online. So you have to reorganize that. Those three are very, very difficult to do. Unfortunately, when you do those three, you still haven't succeeded. And this is to your point, you need number four, number five, and number six. And over the last five, six years, Publicis has paid a lot of attention to all of these. They all did, but they paid particular attention to four, five, six. So four is why is this good for the people? Which is why is this good? these changes good for me who may have joined a company that was different than what I believe doing different things. And the most important reason it's good for you is because you will be relevant in the future versus being irrelevant. Number five is how are incentives going to change? So what began to happen is we changed incentives. And you know, to a great extent, when I was helping build some of the digital operations, there were times when I had no clients, no employees, but I wasn't paid differently. I was paid very well. 
because we no longer basically paid people on client control of how many troops they had or how many old things they sold, which is very important. And the sixth and most important is where is the training program? How do you build people with new skill sets, including management? And that's a few notes, what I'm still doing, which is once a week or once a month for five days, for two hours, I am in the MC of a global training program for us. So those all are needed. So very much to your point, there's the hard stuff, which is, by the way, not easy, which is strategy, M&A, and reorg. And then the soft stuff, which is goddamn hard, which is people. You know, Michael Tyson was supposed to have said this, but I think it's Joe Lewis, that everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. What I've learned is that every leader and board has a strategy, but people get in the way. Yeah, true. Now, listen, Rashad, let's take a quick break. Um, I'd like to, you know, dive into the forecasting stuff sure. after the break. Uh, you know, what comes next? Um, you know, that, that's that's the really sexy stuff. You're listening to The Futurists, myself and uh, Bob Turchek. Uh, we are talking to Rashad Tabakawala. Um, he is the author of Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Okay, welcome back from break. You're listening to The Futurists with Brett King and myself, Robert Tursek. And our guest this week is Rishad Tabakawala, who has been sharing with us some of the methodologies he's been using in more than 30 years as a head of strategy for one of the biggest advertising agencies and holding companies on planet Earth. Now, today, he's focused on training. He's focused on executive training. And that's because just before break, he mentioned to us this six-part plan. Uh, If you're going to be focused on the future, if you want to be successful in your organization in the future, you've got to focus on six things, as Rashad said, not just strategy and a vision of what you want and an understanding of what you need to acquire through mergers and acquisitions and a plan to reorganize your company for success. Those are just baseline table stakes. He also points out that if you don't have these other three things, a vision of how that's going to benefit the employees in the future by keeping them relevant, some incentives, alignment of incentives so that people are all pulling in the same direction, and a training program to ensure success. Without those other three things, the first three really aren't going to get you far. Overshot, this really resonates with me because I spent many years inside of large organizations where they gave me the portfolio of planning for the future and strategy and thinking about what comes next. I love that subject. But what I found is if you can't get the rest of the organization in alignment, in other words, literally, if the executive compensation isn't aligned with those goals and ideas, you're never going to get very far. Uh, You can make changes around the periphery and you can certainly set up innovation programs and launch new businesses, but you're not going to be able to drag that old machinery of the past into the future by yourself. It's got to require alignment across the board. And that really means that the senior management has to come out forcefully, I think, in favor of the future and, and really lean on executives to adopt it. Talk to me a little bit about that part of your program. 
So the, the three parts of that program that were very important, which is leading into the future with both incentives and particularly leadership, was number one, uh, making sure that you understood that certain people in the business were going to be focused on making sure we could build, sort of pay the bills today, and other people could be focused on making sure we had a tomorrow. So Andy Grove, the great Andy Grove, wrote this book called Only the Paranoid Will Survive. Uh, I have ripped off that and created a different title called Only the Schizophrenic Will Thrive. And what I mean by that is you need to have two teams in a company. I'm not talking about skunk works. These are two real teams. Everybody knows about them. One very much focused on today and one very much focused on tomorrow, reporting into the same board and the same leadership, but with the following three differences. A, they are allowed to run slightly different cultures. B, they run different incentive programs. And three, they have different goals. And okay. different tech. Right. So, so when I created Stockholm IP with a couple of colleagues, while I was also involved in creating Stockholm, what was very clear is that the head of Stockholm ran 600 people. I started with two, three people. She ran 600 people. Her job was to basically make sure that we kept our clients, we basically made money with our clients and kept them happy and delivered what we were doing at that time, which is work loss, media planning, and media mind. My job was to ensure that when clients basically looked for digital, they would do not go to companies like Motor Media and Organic, who were specialists in the space, but show them that A, I had the same caliber of talent as those companies, a culture that was built around that kind of people with that kind of technology. And somewhere along, I even left the building. So a company I created or helped create was a company called Giant Step, where I took the name of Leo Burnett. I went into a uh, sort of loft in Greektown. We grew that company to 120 people. We would beat everybody, and we put basically companies like United and McDonald's on the web, right? And they looked at everyone else. But in effect, what I had done in that, or we had done, it's on me, but we had done was basically create very much two companies, each with a culture, technology, goals, but focused on the same ultimate thing, which is happy and satisfied clients. But the reason why that also worked is if a client wanted what I was doing, they had to pay differently than if they wanted to buy television and radio because the economics were different. But at the same stage, I showed that these were different people with different skill sets. And by the way, we were not any more expensive than other specialists. We were more expensive than a media buying and planning company. And that's not because we were any better, but what we, we did was the, the, the way it got done was differently. Our fees relative to what they call working, non-working media was different, right? So, but what was important was the leadership. So I was incented to make sure so that, that Renata McCann did not lose clients because of digital. So my job was credibility with clients, keep clients happy. And also, by the way, one of our differentiating advantages, I can highly integrate into everything else you are doing, which is 95% of your budgets, right? But I'm going to give you world-class 5%, but I can integrate it much easier with 95%. And we were both incented, and we both knew each other's incentives were different. And she let me, she gave me clients. She let me rate some of her people. Right. But in the end, what we recognized was at some stage in the future, I would drop 
IP or I would drop giant step and it would be back to the mothership when the things fused and there was a way to do it. So any, there wasn't any competition, right? There wasn't like this person basically said, you're like, and anybody in today was allowed to work for tomorrow if they were competent. So we didn't say you're yesterday and you're, you know, the tomorrow. So all of those cultural things I've learned over the years, but it's all those three things, which is yeah. make sure you have a culture, why it's good for people, incentive, and also explain. So someone who's buying television, explain to them why what they're doing is currently very important for both the future and how I would go to them and say, by the way, television's going to become like this. So we're going to provide you training as television becomes like this. And as part of it, if you'd like to spend a few months here, come on over, right? So, but, so Richard, um, you know, I mean, culturally, that schizophrenic approach, you know, I use exactly the same language we're talking to bankers, actually, you know, yeah. but um, the challenge I see is once the digital competency becomes the primary competency, you, you have these organisations, um, you know, both on, on the ad agency side and the client side, where you know, that, that's a real cultural change. I mean, it's fine to say let's have this schizophrenic organisation, one experimenting with the new stuff and, you know, um, encouraging the new skill sets and all of that sort of stuff. But ultimately at some point in, in, in the future, that becomes the primary organisation. Um, yes, and, and, yes. and, and that's when you need to have turned the whole ship. Um, and that that's a bigger challenge than sort of having a spin-off with digital expertise, right? Yeah, so what, what you eventually do is you do two things, at least what we found to this current date. You basically, uh, A, need to make sure you have world-class skill sets because here's what clients do, is they buy skills first, they buy integration second, okay? They, they want world-class skills, so they don't, they're basically saying is, I don't want a fantastic integrated dentist and eye doctor. If the two work together, that's fine. But more importantly, if I have two different specialists, but I want the best heart doctor and the best lung doctor. I don't want like someone who's half good at both. So you need that. But to your point, it's because we did this over time, we had all the senior people and we were very involved. And that's the reason I spend most of my time now with talent. We truly began the change. We truly believed that the change we were going to do was not going to be about technology, M&A, and strategy. It was going to be about people. And it was basically a combination of two things. How could we upgrade our people or how could we change our people? And our basic belief was we would much prefer upgrading versus changing. But it was very clear that over time, right, if the jobs in the future is here, you have to upgrade your skills and we will provide you opportunities to upgrade or we're going to have to change you. Uh, okay. And that is a very hard decision to make, especially with very senior and other people. But that I was fortunate in that we had people like Jack Clues and Maurice Levy and now Officer Dune who get it. That's number one. The second is we don't necessarily smush everything together because at any given time, there tend to still be needs for things to be different. And the reason why some things have to be different is culture. So for instance, we still need world-class people who can buy television very effectively. And at the very same stage, we need world-class people who can do customer relationship management, very important. And we need people who can basically create fantastic stories and experiences utilizing their creativity and art. But at the same time, media is changing so fast. You also need people who are attenuated, paying attention to those changes. And yeah. so they have to be versatile in the future, 
yeah. while preserving the past. But what basically happens is if you want to, if you happen to be a world-class media buyer, it is highly unlikely that you're going to basically say, I want to work for a company called Sapient. If you're a world-class engineer, it's highly unlikely you're going to say, I want to work for a company called Leo Burnett. Right? And, and so what tended to basically happen is we still have all those brands, but we have now created both incentive and budgetary and communication systems, which we call the power of one, which is in effect, what we've done is we've got these different companies, each focusing on, and these are companies with five, 10, 15,000 people focusing on these different areas. But we have found ways to combine them in three simple steps, which are very difficult. It took us five years to get it, and I'm not sure we're completely there. So step number one was a un unified PNL. So every client has a unified PNL. As a result of which, any of these individual companies, their PLs don't matter. So if you think you're doing, if you if you try to direct money towards your company that you might be running, you don't get things spread. You're only focused on how your country does and how your client does. Or just to right. clarify, you're talking about the internal companies inside internal companies. of the holding company. So you have a client and the client has one unified budget and then there might be dozens of internal agencies yeah. or other yeah. service companies. But okay. the leadership basically gets incentivized on how the clients did and how the country they work in do, right? And, and, and basically, if their brand didn't do very well, but the client did well and the country did well, fantastic. That's what we want. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea is it allows us to move. The second one is we basically have an underlying matrix, which people laughed at, which is called Marcel, which is a system where all 87,000 people can access jobs and opportunities and training worldwide. So what basically happens is we, we saved many thousand jobs because of COVID, where there were lots of jobs available at one time in China, right? Where they didn't have and less jobs available somewhere else. So we could actually move those because of underlying technology. So that's another part of power of one. I'm connected to something completely big, which is which is important. And the third thing that we basically did to a great extent is we continuously remind people that they are working, that they're playing for two teams. They're playing for very much the team, like their local rugby team, but they're also playing for their country, right? And eventually the highest level is if the country wins, which is, you know, publicist. Obviously, the ultimate stuff is obviously when our clients win. So all of those things, figuring out how that gets done, how people get trained, how you put things together country by country, it took us five years. Wow. Okay, Rashad, I want to shift the focus a little bit here to forecasting, because I know that's something that Brett's interested in hearing about as well. You know, everything you're talking about is re reorganizing the business, reorganizing the people, upskilling the people, keeping yeah. people current and relevant and so forth. I get that. And that's really cool to hear about. But all of that presupposes that you have an idea of what this future we're preparing for looks like. And in a world where we're moving into things like augmented reality, extended reality, virtual reality, immersive media, like 3D worlds, say the metaverse, if you will, um, what is your vision for the future? How do you forecast that? How do you anticipate that? How do you put metrics around that? So the way I, I'll let you know what I think the future is, but the way I come at it and have tended to be relatively good in that 10 years ago, I wrote a piece called 10 Predictions for the Next 10 Years, which I will share with you. Mm -hmm. And 10 Good. years later, all 10 predictions were right. In fact, a lot of people said, did you write this a year or two ago? Because there were things like climate change, things about purpose, things about you know ESG, things about diversity, I had put down, okay? Uh, and people said, it's impossible you wrote this 10 years ago. I did. 
And then the following week, I wrote, here's my prediction for the next 10 years, which I will also send you. So we'll see 10 years from now if that's true. So How do you do it? There are three things that I do. The first thing that I do is I read a lot of different dots, which is I talk to lots of people, read lots of people, attend lots of conferences, and today I do virtual. So I used to go to TED, and I, do the, I, I get all of TED, and I just watch it, okay? Um, I read across every type of media, I just and I cross categories. So as much as I might read about technology, I read poetry, I read, you know, I watch movies, I do all kinds of things. Because I truly believe it's connecting dots in new ways that shows you the future, but you need to get as many dots as you possibly can. And those dots could be people, et cetera, that's one. The second thing that I do is I try to make sure that whatever those dots are and whatever I come up with, do they align with trends which I believe are unstoppable? Or are they opposed to trends that are unstoppable? If they're counter unstoppable trends, I think they won't last. So what are some of these trends that I think are completely unstoppable? Multipolar globalization, unstoppable. Okay, one, two, two. Now, with the exception of Africa, my next comment on demographics is everything but Africa. The world is getting older and the population is starting to shrink, okay, uh, outside of Africa. Um, the third is um, technology, which I mentioned the third connected age. So at the beginning, we talked about first, second, and third connected ages. That's the third. The fourth is the long-term impact of COVID on society. So I basically believed that the impact of COVID will change life forever. There's no ever going back to December 2019. And there, I think, from a human perspective, so I've written something I call the jigsaw of return, which is why I said people will never go back to the offices and words like remote and hybrid are stupid, right? They're different words called unbundled and distributed. I wrote a piece called Return to the Office, which is now read in boardrooms, and they said, this is so simple. I said, yeah, because you're not thinking, right? And there are three key things. I believe the future of work is everyone's going to be a gig worker. Even if you're working in a company for 37 years full time, you're going to be a gig worker. Second is you're going to be working with machines. And what you add to the machine will be where your value is, not against machines or without machines. That's the second component. And the third is everything that you do is going to eventually be measured. And those three things mean that most of us are going to become fractionalized employees. Do you think think we're going to be on UBI, Rashad? I don't know if we're going to be on that, but to a great extent, you know, there are different components of that that are tending to happen. There's someone who basically said instead of university, UBI, you may, you may want to think about UBS. And UBS is um, universal basic services, right? Right, right? And I do believe that to solve for some of what the future of work and some of the issues we have, the four services that this gentleman proposed, I believe they probably are all true. There are three that I truly believe in, and the fourth one I didn't think about. The first one is you're going to eventually have access to healthcare that is portable. It doesn't be linked to a company. Because I can do what I can do because I got grandfathered into my company's thing, so I don't have to worry, right? It's but a very people, U.S. It's a very right? U.S. Thing. It's a U.S. thing, but, but, around, but, but basically you need better healthcare. That's number one. Second is you basically need some form of access to transportation and education. Right. So my basic belief is you need to basically have enough. Your body has to be healthy. You need to be able to move from place to place where you have a job. Right. And you need to be educated and continuously educated. So I believe those are absolutely true. Now, my basic belief is I don't know how universal basic income will work, but if it doesn't work into the, do one of 
to help those three, then we're wasting a lot of money. We tried, by the way, a form of universal basic income at COVID, and that went into basically a lot of things that had nothing to do with improving people's lives, right? Uh, and, and, and so what basically happens is I think there's something like that that might happen. But those are the, and so the people think. So eventually, my final thing is I believe that many of us are, as human beings, we're always living in the real world, but the real world isn't necessarily just the physical world, it's also the digital world. And history has shown we're spending more and more of our time in the digital world. And we basically get a lot of happiness, whether it is connections, flow, or joy, coming from the digital world as much as we come from the analog world. As a result, I'm anticipating that we will spend more and more of our time right, in this world which combines the two. And so a lot of what I'm now suggesting to people is think of no longer, you know, uh, this this idea of basically being omnichannel, right, uh, which people do, or omnimedia. My basic belief is every brand, every marketer, every individual has to think about omnipresence. Uh, and 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 one of the reasons is you and I live primarily in our minds, and we are going to basically have different bodies, both in the real world, which will be augmented with all kinds of technology, but we will also have a completely different body, right, in the future world of whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality. So I basically made 10 of those predictions of where this is going. And one of my biggest predictions is the, our struggle today is because all the ways we are governed are, are set up by systems that are post-World War II, before the internet right. took off. And that's the struggle we're having in the world. Yeah, it is a paradigm shift. Uh, just before we finish up, because we've got only a few minutes left, yeah. Rashad. But uh, you know, um, let's let's take that and run with it. You know, so this vir these virtual or mixed reality worlds, these hybrid digital physical yeah. worlds. You know, one of the core technologies we're going to see over the next few years is these head-mounted displays or smart glasses. Um, you know, advertising. Um, you know, when when we looked at the web, there were two major forms of new types of advertising that emerged for the internet. One was, um, you know, uh, brochureware or websites initially. Um, and then the second was uh, banner ads. Um, uh, you know, and so we've often tried to fit, you know, print ads or TV commercials into these new formats. But smart glasses present an extraordinary opportunity for brands to be contextual. But if they just go with, you know, sort of a broad broadcast type messaging uh, in those instances, I feel like we're going to blow that medium. So um, how do you think, um, you know, that er the era of data and hyper-personalization and targeting, how might that actually be reflected in brand relationships in, in smart glasses in an augmented reality setting? Yeah, so, so you know, my belief is that there will be smart classes uh, at some stage, but there's, they'll have to be such that they'll be, we would have to put them on and put them off. Like I have an Oculus Quest too, which I like a lot, but basically it's, I barely use it because it's like you have to put it on and, you know, it's, you need much more sort of the old Google glasses, though they were tracky, like augmented reality. So there are three areas. Today, the Economist has this great story uh, in their science section about wearables and where wearables are taking off. So I think first will be wearables. But to your point, I basically say, hey, look, the biggest thing in this particular world is you can bring the experience to the person. So today, you know, if you're a hotel, don't advertise. You basically say, hey, look, 
If you'd like to feel what it looks like to basically be in my resort or in my room, check in here, right? Uh, so if I believe if brands are about experiences, all of these things are going to find new ways to create experiences. And, it, and it's going to be experiences versus advertising. Because now people don't necessarily do banners or brochure where people don't necessarily go to people's websites, right? Uh, and, and, and so what has tended to happen is people are now architecting. The other thing that's happened that's very different is remember, at least from the time I started bringing clients onto America online to today, is 30 years, which is two generations. The people who are now in various industries are completely comfortable with this. They're not like old fogies and doofuses like myself, right, who had to learn this whole thing, right? Digital uh, natives, yeah. Yeah. So, Rashad, um, look, we really appreciate you hanging out with us today and giving us some perspective on, on the future of the media business. I think, you know, we could talk about this, obviously, for a lot longer. Um, uh, we've mentioned your book, Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of, of Data, and your uh, your your Substack, which is rashad.substack.com. But how else can people get in touch with you? Where, where can they follow you? Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn? Um, do you have a personal website? So, yeah, so I'm on at Twitter, at Rashad. Uh, my email is rashad at gmail.com. Pretty simple. Uh, on LinkedIn, I'm at Rashad Tobacco. You can find me. But if you Google me, you'll get to my website, which is just my first name, secondname.com. But there are two things that I would suggest to people who are interested in more of this is because the Substack is completely free, you can basically go in there and subscribe and you'll get something from me. But if you decide that I'm going to do some horrible things with your email, don't do that either. You can just say, I want to see the archive and look at it. But if you decide you don't want to do that, go to my website and click on Thought Letter. And everything I've written on my Substack is there. And there are two pieces that I would look at relevant to this conversation because it's about futurists, is where the three pieces, what is the future, how to think about it? I've written a piece on how people think about the future, every trick I use, which is number one. But the other is, this is how I predicted for 10 years. So this is the 10 trends. And then the next one is the 10 next trends. So that would basically, 10 years from now, we'll see how right I was. <laughs> That's great. Thank you very much, Rashad. Great pleasure to see you again. For now, we'll leave you. We'll see you again next week. But for now, we'll see you in the future. future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at at futuristpodcast.com for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.